emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Verisage Institute colleague, Ed Kless. On today's show, folks, we're going to be talking about the war on cancer, Dr. Oswar Raza. Hey, Ed, how's it going? Good. St- still in great suppression mode, but going, getting, getting better. <laughs> I think we're seeing maybe a small light at the end of the tunnel. I think so. Yes. The light at the end of our tunnel vision. Well, Ed, I'm so excited to have our guest. Uh, so I'm just going to go ahead and dive in. Dr. Azra Raza is the Chan Soon Shang Professor of Medicine and Director of the MDS Center at Columbia University in New York. She's an international authority on pre-leukemia, MDS, and acute leukemia, and is one of those rare physicians, oncologists, scientists who divide their time equally between caring for patients and supervising a state-of-the-art basic research lab, which is well-funded by multiple large grants. She's the author of The First Cell and the Human Cost of Pursuing Cancer to the Last, which was one of Am- which was Amazon's best science book of 2019. Azra, welcome to the Soul of Enterprise. Thank you, Ron, and thank you, Ed. I'm honored to be on. Oh, it's such an honor to have you on. And and before we kind of get into the your book, let me just ask you: during this whole COVID thing, you're kind of at the center of all this. How how are you holding up personally? I'm holding up uh, as well as uh, uh, my colleagues who are also acclimatizing themselves to this new mode of taking care of patients remotely, virtual visits. Uh, the kind of Zoom meetings that are going on. So it's been a very didactic experience, but uh, it's amazing how quickly people adapt. Yeah, we are quite adaptable, aren't we? Are are you still, do you still have to see at least some patients for cancer treatments that you're conducting? Yes, we constantly have virtual visits with them right now. We have been told to stay home at the moment. So only those in oncologists who are taking care of inpatients have to go in. And uh, this happens sequentially in turns. So I haven't been to see patients for several weeks now, but every single day I am on telemed. Uh, mm. consulting with patients, and then as needed, sending them for chemotherapy or transfusions that they need to our cancer center. Wow. Well, thank you for your service. You you, you, you folks on the front line are the heroes. Uh, Azra, we were introduced to your book because Russ Roberts' Econ Talk is Ed and I's favorite podcast ever. Uh, and we, we jokingly refer to ourselves here as the poor man's Econ Talk. And after I heard your interview with Russ, uh, I went out and bought your book and read it, couldn't put it down. And like he said, uh, he said it best. He said, your book is hard to read, but it's harder to put down. It's, it's beautifully written. And to be honest with you, I had to stop and cry. I, I, I lost count 
Um, it's, it's so human. It's so profound. Um, it, thank you for writing it and educating us lay people out here on some of these, uh, the effects of cancer. But let's start with what type of cancer do you specialize in? I started by my career by studying and treating acute myeloid leukemia, a very deliberate step that I took. As opposed to studying solid cancers, I wanted to study liquid cancers because they are easily accessible. They are in single cell suspension circulating all over the body. We can sample these cells before, during, and after treatment. So I started by studying this acute form of bone marrow cancer called acute myeloid leukemia. But by 1984, it was apparent to me that in my lifetime, this cancer will not be treatable with the current approaches we had. It is so malicious, malevolent, so malignant and aggressive a disease that uh, I uh, was struck by many of my patients giving the story that Prior to developing this acute leukemia, they had been noted to have low blood counts or anemia. And so I started turning my attention towards those syndromes which develop into this end-stage monstrosity eventually. And so those syndromes are called pre-leukemia or myelodysplastic syndromes. So I know it's a long-winded answer, but it's an important answer to give you that I started by studying acute leukemia in the bone marrow but then turned my attention to studying pre-leukemia and following the patients as they uh, traverse this journey towards the acute form of leukemia, which is so vicious and so lethal. Right. And, and I remember you wrote, you actually started in pediatric oncology and then just couldn't handle that. Is that, was that right? Yes. I came to this country in January of 1977. And my residency wasn't going to start in medicine until um, July. And I'm not the kind of person who can sit around at home. So my older sister, who was a pediatric uh, resident at the time, I begged her to somehow get me into the hospital. And uh, she spoke to her oncology colleagues and uh, uh, they said, well, if your sister's half, half as good as you, we let her in. And so I started in pediatric oncology. And before long, it was very clear to me, Ron, that I will not be able to continue in this field. And it wasn't because I was a, in an, an intellectual failure at some level. It was totally an emotional thing hard to take helpless children and simply force them into fetal positions to do bone marrows. At least adults have a choice. They can tell you not to do things, but children couldn't. And that was heartbreaking. Right. That's totally understandable. You know, you, you write in the book that today one in two men and one in three women will get cancer, nearly 18 million worldwide. And, and then you wrote this, and I just think this is the most profound thing. My surroundings may not have changed much, but my perceptions have, like the difference between illness and disease, between the, the, you know, the will to cure and to heal, between what it means to feel no pain and to feel well. But then you say, I felt like a fraud, a posturing intellectual phony. In the march to death, I had begun to catalog the tragedies of survival. What made you 
what brought on these feelings? Because this is just very introspective, but it's also very profound. One, I suppose, uh, completely soul-shattering experience, uh, despite the fact that I had been an oncologist for 20 years, was when I was eventually forced into uh, seeing it up close and, and uh, front and center in my own life as my husband, who was the head of the cancer center, got diagnosed with the very disease he was trying to cure all his life, leukemia. And so it became uh, so personal for me. I can't say that uh, it changed the way I treated patients or change something fundamental about uh, me being an oncologist, but I have to say that it kind of, in a remarkable way, inverted the entire reality principle for me. Because now it was very clear that Harvey was not going to be cured this is not a curable leukemia that he had. And um, it brings to mind something that Peter DeRice writes in his book in 1961, The Blood of the Lamb. Uh, this is, he's writing in 1961, Ron. Imagine that. And the idea is that his own daughter had uh, leukemia. And he says, death by leukemia is now a local and not an express. Same run, a few more stops. But that's medicine, the art of prolonging disease. This became graphically obvious to me as I was um, not only sharing a bed with a cancer patient, but also being his oncologist. So standing on both sides of the bed. And that's what I mean by inverting the reality principle, because suddenly the hopelessness that was there for me became a mode of action. Because now you know that there is no end you can really predict in a positive way. So day-to-day -day living becomes so much more important. And then eventually the only consolation is that there is no consolation. The only answer is that there is no answer. And you begin to catalog the happenings of every single day in your life. I hope that answers your question. No, it does. It's, it's beautiful. Um, you also write, and I know probably Ed's going to ask you some questions about this because we only have a couple minutes in this segment. But you say treatments for cancer haven't changed in 50 years. It was just as primitive a century ago. I mean, with minor variations. It's a protocol of surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation that you label the slash poison burn approach to treating cancer. It's an embarrassment. Equally embarrassing is the arrogant denial of that embarrassment. Osra, why is that? And we've only got a minute, so. <laughs> okay. Well, this is the paradox for me also, Ron, that we are living in the most sophisticated technologic era. And yet the treatments we are giving to our cancer patients are paleolithic. 
think about it that the first slashing of cancer was done in 500 BC on Queen Atossa's breast. Her Greek slave took out his sword and slashed off her breast full of tumor. We are still slashing breasts for women. Chemical weapons, chemotherapy is a direct result of using chemical weapons in World War I. Cytoxin, chlorambucil, melphalan. Three drugs came directly out of chemical weapons. We are still using the same three drugs. Harvey was treated with two of those. Why has that happened? This is the question that forced has kept me up at all hours of the night and forced me to take a survey of the field and see why are we stuck in this. Well, Azra, this has been fantastic. I know this hour is just going to fly by, but folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or myself, you can send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Check out the soulofenterprise.com. We'll post full show notes on our interview with Dr. Raza, including links to her books and some of her videos. And now we want to hear from our sponsors. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are talking with Dr. Azra Reza, the author of The First Cell. And Azra, I have to tell you, I learned so much about cancer from your book. It, it, it was just incredible. The thing that struck me was the complexity, you know, as a lay person thinking about it, we all, I think we look at disease as monolithic. And one of the things that I'd like for you to talk about is this notion that if you, and you write in the book, if you biopsy a, a biopsy a patient with breast cancer twice in a day, once in the breast and once in the lymph node, you'll get 
cancer cells with different sequences. So cancer is not the same in the same person, even hours apart, or it, or even in the same sp- different parts of their body. And I had not never realized the the level of complexity. Could you expound on that? Yes, thank you, Ed, for that very important question. Because all cancers, you see, begin in a single cell. Uh, right now, we think that a cell becomes cancerous uh, for uh, one of uh, probably four reasons. One is that there is an inherited, some kind of uh, genetic predisposition because of which the cell uh, becomes rogue. Uh, Second is that something in the environment damages the DNA. Third is that there is a pathogen involved, you know, like in hepatic cancer, there is the hepatitis C virus or B virus, etc. But for the majority, the vast majority of cancers, it's a DNA copying error, a random event. As cells divide, they have to copy their DNA and they can make errors. And these errors are called mutations. And normally a cell would pick up two, three mutations each time it divides. But if this mutation, this mistake of copying occurs in an area or a gene, which is very vital for proliferation, let's say, or getting out of control of uh, growth suppressive signals, then it becomes uh, very malignant for the cell. It uh, frees itself from normal controls and it can now immortalize itself by perpetual proliferation. The problem is that each time this, so it begins in a cell with some problems freeing itself from growth, but each time it divides into two, there are two potential new cancers now because they have picked up new mutations each time they divide just due to the random DNA copying error. So now imagine it's starting and becoming a tree with branches and each branch with each new leaf is a new cancer. In other words, the complexity uh, increases in quantum leaps as the cancer grows and as time goes on and a cancer moves from one place to another. So that's what I meant by saying there are hundreds and hundreds and thousands of cancers within each cancer. My loss. Oh, there you are, Ed. Sorry. Go ahead. I I I, I didn't hear the end of the answer. Okay. So I think what you... I was saying was the complexity of cancer, which begins in a single cell, increases with time, like the branches on a tree keep increasing in uh, and diversifying, and each new leaf on this tree is representing another new cancer. Yeah. And and you mentioned the, the the four different causes. Are we? It, do we think that that the, those diff- different causes are causes of the different forms of cancer, or could all all four of those be um, is cause similar cancers? Well, so the cancer researchers have combined all these four causes of cancer to say that no matter what the initiating event is. Um, uh, that made the cell become cancerous, basically the way it expresses its malignant phenotype has to be through uh, genetic problems, problems in the genes itself. And so this is why this complexity of cancer is now becoming um, addressed by a simplistic reductionist approach of looking at uh, what has gone wrong with the genes. 
And in the, you see, the treatment of cancer that began with the slash poison burn, as Ron and I were discussing earlier, um, in the last 60 years, these we kept thinking these are just stopgap measures. Very soon we'll understand the biology of uh, what makes a cell become malignant by changing their uh, signaling pathways, controlled by genes. We are going to find them, and then we'll be able to reverse those. In 60 years, those reductionist approaches have not worked. So when you ask me, well, all those four causative things working on the body, can do they cause the same kind of cancers or different cancers? My answer to you is that ultimately, the fact is that the cell's function is controlled genetically, and so something has to be wrong in the genes. But those genes are being controlled by things outside. So it's so complex that our simplistic reductionist approaches of trying to address this complexity has failed spectacularly. And I just equated that as we're you know going through these last uh six six or so weeks together that the, the complexity of what's happening with with covid is a, is a is an example of a, uh, a, a macrocosm of the cancer cell i mean the, you know we have all of a uh, ron and i joke that you know getting our getting our degree in medicine and statistics over the class of la the last three weeks has been a been a, been a struggle but it's the, they're just it's so complex and this is you're talking about small little cells in the body, and now we're trying to figure this out for all of society. It's a, it's a, a it, I just thought it was an interesting parallel. No, absolutely, I couldn't agree more. And in fact, there are very many parallels with the way uh, COVID nineteen is uh, is attacking, and if the disease is uh, uh, is not just dependent on the virus itself, but on the body that it is infecting. Do you see that some people have just a symptoms of a cold? Some people don't even have any symptoms. They're walking around with COVID. And others are ending up uh, with this proving to be lethal. Why? Because the difference is in the protoplasm of the host, not of the pathogen that's infecting. So this is the complexity of cancer also. That it's not just the gene that's gone wrong, but so many things around and. And the earlier we, the, the best way of COVID-19 treatment right now, what is the best treatment is don't get it. <laughs> How do you avoid it? You just try not to expose yourself to it by lifestyle changes. You're staying away. You're isolating yourself. You know? So prevention is the best cure for these complex diseases that we don't understand. And this is what I'm trying to say for cancer also, that the best thing you can do for cancer is don't get it at all try to kill it at a precancerous level. And and wonder if you would address though the the so-called I think it's CART is it right or is it CAR T therapies that are being developed? CAR T therapies are a kind of cellular therapies and uh, uh, they are commendable the two individuals a Japanese and an American got Nobel uh, the Nobel prize for the discovery of uh, this kind of immune therapy. And I have great respect for uh, not just the scientists, but also the brilliance of this science, which is that you can take the body's own immune cell, which is somehow not recognizing the cancerous, uh, cancerous development and target it to kill the cancer cell. The problem with this approach, which no one you will hear talk about this at all, 
Uh, Ed and Ron, I challenge you. I listen to these lectures from oncologists all the time on YouTube. And what I find they don't ever mention is that, yes, it's a very clever way of trying to kill cancer by using the patient's own immune cells to kill the cancer. The thing they forget to tell you is that the CAR T cells cannot distinguish between a normal cell and a cancer cell. So all you can tell them to do is to kill the entire organ in which the cancer arose. Right now, the only possibility of using CAR T cells is against B cell lymphoid malignancies. So B cells are a kind of immune cells in the body. When patients get cancers of B cells like lymphoma or leukemia, we can tell T cells, another arm of the immune system, to go and kill every single B cell in the body. That's all we are doing with T cells. So every single normal as well as cancer or leukemic B cell gets destroyed. Now, what is the function of B cells? They make antibodies. So for the rest of the individual's life, we have to give them immunoglobulins by intravenous infusions, the antibodies that will protect them. What will be the long-term effect of those? We don't even know that. But think about what we are doing. If we wanted to target T cells to a liver cancer, all we could do today is to tell it to go kill the whole liver or kill the whole pancreas, kill all the lungs. That can't happen because we can't replace functions of liver, pancreas, and lungs. And this is why CAR T cells cannot. But you don't hear oncologists talk about the fact that T's, these CAR T cells cannot uh, separate normal from malignant cells. They keep acting like, oh, we have this wonderful cure where we're using the immune cells to kill cancer. Not You're not using it to kill cancer. You're using it to kill cancer and all the normal cells. Yeah, and, and again, just another treatment for that's going after the last cell instead of the, the first cell, and hence the name of your book. And, and hopefully for the, for the second half of our conversation, we'll begin to transition over to the, 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 the positive side of things and what you're doing to get people to think about this uh, differently. But um, right, right now, I want to remind you that you can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. The website is thesoulofenterprise.com, where you can see show notes and previews to upcoming shows. We also have a new subscribe page up especially for those of you on mobile devices, thesoulofenterprise.com slash subscribe, and please subscribe to the podcast in on any of the formats that you deem appropriate. But right now, a word from our sponsor. The future of online TV is here. View, exclu view exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. 
Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. Here We're here with Dr. Azra Raza. And Azra, before we get into the more hopeful things, I just want to ask you one more thing. You say no one is winning the war on cancer. It's mostly hype. And I would think most, just the average layperson out there would think, well, since the days that you know Nixon declared a war on cancer, we have been making progress. What's the disconnect there? An, an, an excellent question. Yes, we have made progress in the sense that 68% cancers which are diagnosed today are cured. 32% that present with advanced disease are not cured and their uh, uh, outlook is as bleak as it was in, say, 60 years ago. So how are we curing these 68% of the patients? That's the first question. We are still curing them by and large, for all common cancers with the same slash poison burn that we have been using. And so when you look at statistics, sure, there are 15 million cancer survivors, but these many of these survivors are struggling with uh, uh, issues that were created by the kind of treatments they received. Total amount of money spent on cancer research has been a quarter of a trillion dollars since 1971 when President Nixon declared war on cancer. And what do we have to show for this quarter of a trillion dollars? Why are we still using slash poison burn? And this became a very serious issue that slapped me in the face when my daughter's best friend at 22 years of age, this young boy, Andrew, got diagnosed suddenly a beautiful young man in just starting his whole life uh, as a young adult gets diagnosed with a nine centimeter tumor in his brain. And at that moment, imagine that the number of ways in which we are going to fail this poor young man became apparent because all his oncologist could do was basically say to him that you either die from the cancer or die from the treatment we are going to give you. But die you will. And this dual affront added 
to me, insult to injury, that not only is this poor young man going to die, but we are going to make it so much worse for him with the treatments we are going to give. Why don't we have better treatments? So when, you, when we talk about things like, oh, cancer death rate is decreasing by 1% a year for the last 30 years, so it means it's decreased by 26, 27% already. Most of that decline is for two reasons. One, because of uh, early detection. We are uh, detecting cancers early and using the same chemotherapy and slash and burn approaches to treat them. And the second is that anti-smoking campaigns finally began to show some results so that fewer people are getting more advanced cancers. So really, the improvement in treatments have been that we have learned to use better combinations of chemotherapy, diagnose cancers early and treat them with the same chemotherapy. Very few, like couple of examples of targeted therapies which actually go after a genetic mutation and offer a magic bullet for that one gene that had uh, started working abnormally, very few examples of that. As I said, by and large, it's just better use of the same old approaches. And those, if you call those great advances, then by all means, we can say, yes, things are different than they are from 1971. But if a 22-year-old is diagnosed with advanced cancer today, for him, there is no difference than he would be treated in 1971. Right. Yeah, no, I remember that story. <laughs> um, so let's let's pivot to your strategy and the and the name of your book. I mean, you you think the strategy is stop chasing after the last cancer cell and focus on eliminating the first. I also found it very interesting, just as a layman, that you believe that these experiments with animals, mice in particular, don't really teach us much in terms of how it works on real humans. Um, is it really possible, Osra, with your strategy to, to reduce cancer deaths by 75%? I think so, yes, definitely. And uh, Einstein was uh, made a very interesting observation once. He said, if I'm given one hour to solve a problem, I will spend 55 minutes defining the problem. It will take me five minutes to come up with the solution. <laughs> so... It. The title of the book is The First Cell, but the subtitle is almost as important to me, which is The Human Costs of Going After Cancer's Last Cell. And my exhortation in the book and constantly in all my writings is, let's take off the blinders. Let's stop congratulating ourselves and patting each other on the back and giving each other gold medals, claiming that we have made fabulous advances in cancer treatment and understanding. And let's just look at the field where we are right now. Right now, if you think about the kind of statistics we have, are really chilling statistics that... Um, Half the women who have stage four breast cancer are in, uh, being hounded by collection agencies. Um, how is it possible that 42% of patients who are diagnosed with cancer in America, the most affluent country in the world, are financially completely ruined by the second year of their diagnosis? How is it that 95% cases in Carlsbad 
न्यू मैक्सिको नाइंटी कोर्ट केसेस आर हेल्थ केयर रिलेटेड so what we are doing for little gain you i just quoted the statistics again and again to you that even people we are curing we are financially ruining so many of them so the question is why are we seeing such staggering failures and one of the things you pointed out is my criticism of the preclinical testing platforms how do we bring how do we develop new drugs for treatment of cancer we try to create cancer in the lab in animals then we treat them with drugs we are interested in if the animal shows a response we say oh great it's working in mice so let's bring it to the bedside now 95% of the drugs we developed this way have failed today they are failing 95% and the 5% that succeed should have failed because they're only improving survival by a few months if not a few weeks and very few if ever anecdotes are cured otherwise their 20 to 30% patients are improving their survival by a few months and the financial costs are ruinous so my uh, criticism of mice uh, and animal models is not um that we should never study animals no we should uh, definitely try and understand the biologic uh, uh, basis of cancer by studying it in animals but we cannot use animal models and extrapolate from how they respond to a drug and uh, imagine that it would have the same result in humans right and when you say the first cell you 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 actually i think you quoted one of your colleagues who who basically said early detection screening has not fulfilled our expectations you know psa tests things like that you you're actually talking about some things that are being worked on like a machine that automatically images your body when you take a shower or wearing a smart bra that has tons of sensors in it and and other ways of measuring things from your urine your blood saliva all these types of things you're you're optimistic that some of these uh, things they're working on are going to come to fruition i am extremely optimistic in fact let me make a pronouncement right now the decade of 2020 to 2030 is going to be the decade in which we will find the best solutions of cancer because we are going to go from treating the disease to preventing the disease and not just in cancer i'm making that prediction for healthcare in general the most shocking thing to me ron and ed has been that we use technology that was available 50 years ago like mammography or colonoscopy and we claim that oh those things have not produced the best results in screening as screening measures some people um, women who were found to have uh, uh, a mass in the breast and we took off their breast uh, it turns out later the cancer wouldn't have even killed them in other words we are over diagnosing over treating with some of these technologies and the, and so screening is not worth it for god's sake no the principle is very important that early detection and prevention is very important the techniques we have are ancient they should be given up we should be using 50 different techniques uh, uh, to identify one or the the initiation of cancer in the body 
and not take action based on any one test at all. In this day and age of sophisticated technology, we should use genomics, proteomics, transcriptomics, metabolomics, panomics, combined with scanning and imaging devices, combined with using all of these, this technology to examine blood and sweat and tears and saliva and urine and stool and the body in general through as you said, smart bras and scanning sheets, uh, which uh, scan overnight for detection of uh, uh, hot areas in the body. That's the kind of future I'm imagining, using the best sophisticated technology to study multiple compartments in the body, to find the footprints of cancer in a hundred different ways, and only then and only then take action to try and get rid of that. Azra. Is a cancer vaccine possible? Yes, cancer vaccine is also possible because um, just like uh, for cervical cancer, do you see that we have a vaccine already to prevent it? So once we find the uh, mechanism by which different cancers are um, initiated in the body, for uh, none of the solutions will be universally applicable because cancer is not one disease. So for different cancers, for some there may be vaccine, for others it may be impossible. But I do think that the way we have been doing things, there's no inherent righteousness in doing them. Because if we kept trying to improve the typewriter, we would never have invented the word processor. And now who thinks about a typewriter? No one. But the idea is that um, we need a radically different approach, a quantum leap different than what we have been doing and stop trying to improve uh, uh, in little increments what we have been doing, but rather go for a radically different approach, which will revolutionize the whole area and field and help our patients for God's sake. And that's definitely the optimistic part of your book. <clears throat> Azra, this this was painful for me to read, but you wrote, I wish I felt like an exceptional oncologist. Most days I feel like a complete failure. And I have to tell you what, <laughs> even though I know you're, you, you work against great odds. My mom's a three time cancer survivor. She had uterus, breast and liver cancer. And my oncologist, her oncologists are heroes to me because she's still living and she's 87. Um, but you tell a story towards the end of the book about walking in the mall with your sister and your brother, who's a cardiologist, your, your whole family, by the way, sound like geniuses and people are coming up and hugging him. And because he saved their life or he performed surgery on him, got him better. And, and your mother asks you, you have been in Buffalo for almost 10 years. I've never met any of your patients. Why are heart patients doing so much better than cancer patients? Wow, that's that's profound. Yes, and uh, we had to tell her that uh, I was dreading that question from her, but uh, I told her that my brother and I talk about it often, and it's because cardiologists and cardiac surgeons were smarter than oncologists. They understood that treatment alone even if they treat early, treatment alone will not be the answer. So they went for prevention and treatment. Think of the cholesterol-lowering drugs along with doing early stenting, along with doing cardiac bypasses. 
they have used both technologies. Think about infectious diseases. We found antibiotics in the 1940s and that single advance in, in medicine doubled human lifespan immediately. And yet the real revolution did not come with finding antibiotics. The real revolution came with finding vaccines. But we are preventing all those diseases that no one has even heard of, like polio and, um, and TB and uh, all the uh, cholera and all kinds of things that used to be the real killers. So my mother was completely right about it. And I am very happy that you pointed to this particular part of the book. Prevention is it for cancer also. Raza, we're, we're at the end of our time together, but I just have to say I, the, the other thing I learned from your book that I just loved was I didn't know that the response to a greeting from a younger person in Arabic is often, may you live to bury me. <laughs> I just think that was beautiful, but uh, this has been great. Ed's going to take you home, but I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the soul of enterprise. And we're going to, I know I'm going to be recommending your book all year. It's going to hit my top five books of all uh, of all time for this year. So thank you so much for, for coming on the show. And folks, I'd like to remind you, if you want to send Ed or me an email, do so at asktsoe at verisage.com. Go out to wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating and we'll uh, definitely read it on the air. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is, for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. The book is The First Cell and the Human Costs of Pursuing Cancer to the Last by Dr. Azra Raza. And 
Doctor, I wanted to take us hopefully in a, a slightly different direction. I I'm, was intrigued with the conversation about uh, smart braziers and, and sheets and all of the stuff to detect the heat, heat sensors. Um, what, what about the, are there privacy concerns with this scanning? And one of the things that I, some of my friends talk about is they won't do the 23andMe stuff because they're worried that some insurance company is going to find out about it. Are there any privacy concerns that we have to worry ourselves with, with regard to this kinds of screening? There are always privacy concerns and we have to be very careful, but we shouldn't allow privacy concerns to, uh, of individuals to really uh, push the whole society backwards. The way the HIPAA rules have been applied today are uh, like shackles around the ankles of researchers rather than protecting individuals. So anything that gets uh, that one gets carried away with and taken to uh, an extreme absurd level becomes uh, untenable, unsupportable. But privacy issues are important and they should be handled carefully. The other thing that you mentioned about uh, individuals not wanting to get uh, 23 and me because they don't want to know what they are uh, susceptible to is perfectly understandable, but that's why the important thing is everything needs to co-evolve. So not only early detection, but early treatment will co-evolve along with it. And so when people know that if I'm diagnosed with early cancer, then I can have this treatment, then they wouldn't be so worried and wouldn't be so scared. So I think it's a, it's an interesting uh, kind of conversation to have, but I think uh, it's a legitimate concern, not a realistic one, really. Talk a little bit about the research lab that you you run, and and you say you spend a good amount of your time with with patients, but then also the the, the research piece. And you created this lab was it um, two two decades ago? Is that correct? Yes. So what happened, interestingly, Ed, was that uh, in 1984, I decided that I'm going to study pre-leukemia, follow these patients to acute leukemia. At this point, had I gone to school in this country, my next uh, job would have been to develop a mouse model or some kind of animal studies, design them to study the disease. But I had grown up in Pakistan and I was a naive young person who had <laughs> arrived in this country as a Muslim immigrant woman to cure cancer. <laughs> I talk about being audacious. And um, I followed instinct rather than tradition. And my instinct was if I'm going to cure cancer, I should have cells to study. So I started banking cells on my patients back in 1984 when no one else was doing it. And today I have the world's largest tissue repository containing over 60,000 samples from thousands of patients who have been serially studied in a longitudinal manner. I have their blood, their marrow, their serum, their plasma, their biopsies, their buccal smears, and all these things backed by a computerized data bank, which contains all sorts of phenotypic, genotypic clinical information on these patients. So this is the, an incredible, precious resource. And do you know, Ed, that not one single cell in all these 60,000 samples comes from another doctor. I have taken care of every patient myself. I do the bone marrows to this day by myself. And so the bank has a very personal investment, an emotional investment for me. Every while tells a story to me. So science and research for me 
is not just an impersonal, indifferent kind of endeavor where I'm trying to get another grant or have another paper published in Nature. I've had plenty of those too, by the way. But that is not the motivation behind any of this. So all these years, we have gone in and asked smaller questions about uh, genes or signaling pathways or this or that. But now my, and I published extensively in high profile journal, but now the impetus for me is to study the whole tissue repository with all the latest technology we talked about. And that's worth a hundred million dollars. Who's going to give it to me? I don't know, but I'm going to keep trying. <laughs> well, I wish I had 200 million to give you. Um, and hopefully we'll get the, this message out. I, I just I just found that aspect of this to just be so so fascinating that you're one of the few. I, I don't. Is there anyone else who's done anything similar? No. Wow. And that it's what a great what a great repository. What a great resource. Um, to to wrap this up, we we've got about three minutes left. And and one of the things that is also great about your book is it's just peppered with great references to literature. And I know it's something that you are uh, very passionate about. Um, I'm a word guy as well. I found the whole, uh, the, the thing about the ph pharmacan as the Greek word meaning remedy, poison, and sacrifice. Do I have that right? I'm trying to go in from memory here. <laughs> yes, you have it perfectly. <laughs> okay. And um, one of the things I wanted to, to share with you, and, and you talked a little bit about this with, with Russ Roberts on his podcast as well, is the importance of of art and literature in in the in the treatment of of us as human beings and the when i when i and i also saw this in in one of your videos as well that the whole notion of, of sacrifice came out i was reminded of the william butler yeats poem um easter 1916 so i'm gonna i'm gonna share part of it with you that i've i've committed to memory <laughs> and um too too long a sacrifice can make a stone of the heart Oh, when may it suffice? That is heaven's part. Our part but to murmur name upon name as a mother names her child when sleep at last has come on limbs that had run wild. Was it but nightfall? No, no, not night, but death. Was it needless death after all? For we may all keep faith for all that is done and said. We know their dreams enough to know they dreamed and now are dead. But what if excessive love bewildered them till they died? I write it out in a verse. McDonough and McBride and Connolly and Pierce, now and in time to be, wherever green is worn or changed, changed utterly, a terrible beauty is born. Wow, that's beautiful. Well, I'm going to counter it with one of my Emily Dickinson in that case. Please, that's what I was hoping. <laughs> <laughs> I measure every grief I meet with analytic eyes. I wonder if it weighs like mine or has a different size. I wonder if they bore it long or did it just begin? I cannot find the date of mine. It's been so long a pain. I wonder if it hurts to live and if they have to try and whether could they choose between, they would not rather die. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> Dr. Azra Reza has been a fantastic guest. Thank you so much for being on the Soul of Enterprise. 
Absolutely. Ron, what do we got next week? We have economist Dan Mitchell. So I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the soul of enterprise business in the knowledge economy sponsored by Sage transforming the way people think and work so the organizations can thrive. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, please check out our show notes at soulofenterprise.com. We'll post uh, links to uh, Dr. Raza's work in her book, and you can also contact Ed or myself at asktsoe at verisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Stay safe. <laughs>